0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Today is Wednesday, April fifteenth, 2020. And we are still under the coronavirus lockdown. And today I am working from home, which is why this microphone might sound a little bit different than when I'm standing at the pulpit of GCA. But being Wednesday, we are still committed to keeping the regular GCA teaching schedule so that there are Sunday and Wednesday messages available via our website so that the internet listeners can continue with the studies that we began before the coronavirus lockdown. So today we are in Proverbs chapter 25, if you'd like to read along with us. Last week we got as far as verse 7, so today we will pick up in verse 8. Now verses 8 to 10 are all one unit. They are all addressing the same idea, and that idea is be careful about talking about other people. Repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, we are told not to be gossips, not to talk about other people, to control our tongues, to be very careful with our lips, to make sure that we use our mouth to say positive, uplifting things to other people. Well, here in chapter 25, we're going to return to that subject from yet another angle. Now, these are, as chapter 25, verse 1 tells us, these are Proverbs of Solomon. 250 years after Solomon was king, then the men, probably the scribes of Hezekiah, king of Judah, then transcribed these particular Proverbs, which is why several of them are going to be repeated, things that we have heard earlier in the book of Proverbs that are then brought forward historically by the scribes of Hezekiah. So the same ideas, the same themes, oftentimes the same words. Verse 8 through 10 reads like this. We'll read it out and then we'll go back and talk about it. Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the secret of another, lest he who hears it reproach you and the evil report about you not pass away. So there's a series of events that have occurred in these verses that begins with somebody being in a hurry to go out and make their case against somebody else let's say you have been wronged by somebody, somebody has upset you, they have wronged you in some way, well then, if you're impatient and you run out and you start telling other people, you know what that guy did, you start backbiting, you start destroying their reputation, if you go out and you do that, but meanwhile your neighbor is being upright just about it, he's keeping your privacy, he's maintaining your reputation, or even if he's got his side of the story to tell, well, that's going to end up coming back on you eventually. In other words, you're the one who's harming you when you go out and gossip about somebody else, when you go out and make your case against somebody else. So verse 8, the first part of the verse says, Do not go out hastily to argue your case. In other words, your case were added by the NASB translators. The Hebrew word there actually means to contend. Don't be in a hurry to go out and argue. Don't be in a hurry to go contend about something. In other words, be patient. Patience, after all, is a virtue. And your willingness to go out and talk about other people is ultimately going to be a reflection on you. So, don't go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end? I think the second half of verse 10 tells us what that ending is. The ending is that ultimately an evil report about you rises, and then it doesn't go away. Your reputation is permanently besmirched. And what are you going to do then? What are you going to do to try to recover your ruined reputation? Because your neighbor, at some point, is going to hear about it. They're going to find out that you were out talking about them. And then they're going to have an opportunity to defend themselves. And they're going to show themselves, in this scenario, to be more just than you were. And in that way, your neighbor is going to put you to shame So what you really ought to do is, when you have a difference, when you have a problem with somebody else, you ought to argue your case with them. Go to them. Tell them what your concerns are. Certainly we know that that's a very Christian New Testament principle, that if we have ought against our brother, we go to them individually. We talk to them about it, a one-on-one thing rather than going behind their back and talking to other people about it, spreading rumors about them or destroying their reputation. Argue your case with your brother and do not reveal the secret of another. In other words, what happened between you and that person is private to the two of you. But if you go out and talk about it, you're revealing secrets about him. That word secret means you're revealing something that otherwise people just wouldn't have known about them. But you're going to go gossip about them, talk about them, in order to make yourself feel better, in order to make yourself look justified. And in so doing, you're going to reveal events, characteristics, words, gossip about somebody else, in an effort to damage them. But in the end, the one who's damaged is you. Because verse 10 says, lest he who hears it, that's the person you're talking to, you're complaining to, they're going to hear it and they're going to reproach you. They're going to go back to your neighbor at some point and they're going to tell them, hey, this is what I heard about you and guess where I heard it. Because the truth is, The only words you're never going to regret saying are the words you don't say. But your willingness to go out and talk about somebody else, to ruin somebody else's reputation, to gossip about somebody else, that says something about you. That demonstrates that you're the sort of person who will do that kind of thing. Many times through the years at GCA, there have been situations where someone has come to me and asked about someone else. What do you know about this particular situation? Or did you hear about this and that? And I try very hard to make it my practice to never speak about somebody else because I'm fully aware that the person I am telling that story to is going to walk away knowing that I'm the kind of person who you can't trust with a secret or who you can't tell anything in private because I will go out and reveal it again later. So the person I have revealed that to is going to walk away knowing that I'm the kind of person who talks about other people behind their back. So then they're not going to trust me either. So this is just really good Rock-solid advice from Solomon, and I can certainly see why the scribes of Hezekiah would decide to write this one down nice and early. Don't talk about other people, because it's a reflection of you. It's going to come back on you. Do not go hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor. And do not reveal the secret of another, lest he who hears it reproach you, and the evil report about you not pass away. Once your reputation has been destroyed, there's no way to restore it again. People are always going to know that they can't really trust you. Many, many years ago, I came across a little bit of writing from William Shakespeare that I memorized at that point that I have always paid attention to ever since, because it so affected me even as a kid. And here I am all these years later, reading in the Bible the same idea, which is to be careful about your own good name, your own reputation. Don't destroy your own reputation by using too many words. Now, for the record, the William Shakespeare quote that I liked so much goes he who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he who steals from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Even way back then that affected me so much that I memorized it and all these years later remember it You can take anything from me, and if you steal my money, which is what he means by you take my purse, okay, it was mine, now it's yours, and it's been slaved to thousands. But if you take from me my good name, my good reputation, you take something that doesn't benefit you, doesn't make you any richer, but it makes me really poor. Moving on. Last week, we looked at verse 11 and 12. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And I mentioned that there are two different aspects of those two verses when they're put together. One is it's very valuable to be able to say the right word under the right circumstances, to have an appropriate word of comfort or instruction. And I think that stands in contrast to everything we just read about hastily arguing your case, talking about someone else. Instead, having the right word to say under the right circumstances is like an apple of gold in a setting of silver, but then also being willing to listen to that. Is of great value. A wise reprover to a listening ear is of great value. So, listening, paying attention, being able to be instructed in order to accept reproof is valuable, but also it's valuable to be the wise reprover who is able to instruct somebody, to reprove, to correct somebody, and to do it in an appropriate way, using appropriate words, a word spoken in right circumstances. There is a phrase that I have raised my children with, which is, you can tell anybody anything, it all depends on how you tell them. If you are a wise reprover, you're able to tell somebody who's willing to listen just about Anything. If you use good language, if you use proper words at the proper time, a good word spoken in the right circumstance. So putting everything together that we've read so far today, you get, don't be quick to hurt other people with your words, but do be wise with your words. It's not that Solomon is saying just shut up completely. He says there is a time and a place, and when you speak right words, when you speak encouraging words, when you speak wise words of reproof and correction to people, that's of infinite value, and the ability to hear it is very valuable as well. And that takes us to verse 13. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger, to those who send him for he refreshes the soul of his masters so this particular simile is about somebody who carries a word for a king for a master and it must have been difficult for solomon as a king to find faithful messengers who would just carry his words carry his commands when he put them out because he talks a lot about the importance of being a faithful messenger. But I think today in our interpersonal human relations, it's good to know that if we tell somebody to tell somebody else something, if the person is faithful, if they do it without coloring the message, you know, people who add their own opinions to the things that you have asked them to carry for you, well, that's what Solomon is talking about here. If they are faithful to the message, then that is refreshing to the soul of his masters. So, when we read that they are like the snow in the time of harvest, we have to read that in a way that brings about refreshing. Now, the time of harvest is usually very hot. When it's time to harvest your field, the rainy season is usually long gone And it's hot out. And if you are out working in the heat, doing the harvesting, and suddenly, almost like this fantasy that Solomon has constructed here, suddenly it snows in the midst of the time of harvest, well, that's nothing but refreshing. You finally get a break from the heat. So he uses that to compare to a faithful messenger, somebody who carries your word correctly and rightly. And that refreshes the soul of his master to know that he has found somebody he can trust. So again, everything we've read today has to do with trust, has to do with not destroying somebody else's reputation or telling secrets about anybody else, saying words that are appropriate, a good word spoken under right circumstances, and also being faithful when you're told to carry a message and just carrying that message without coloring it with your opinions. Now, on the other hand, verse 14 also reads like a simile, and because it's reading like a simile, the translators of the NASB have added the word like to the beginning of it. Like clouds and winds without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Now, if that verse is connected with what went immediately before it, then he's saying that a faithful messenger who only carries the words he was sent to carry is not going to start talking about himself. He's not going to start boasting. A person who is full of himself, who is boasting about himself, and then boasts about his gifts falsely. I think we have all dealt with that. In fact, when I just said that, somebody probably just popped into your head. Egocentric people who claim that they have gifts and abilities far beyond what they actually have, and then they boast about it when everybody knows they don't really have that gift, they don't really have that ability, they're not really all that. Well, that kind of boasting, that kind of arrogance, that kind of self-involvement is like a cloud and wind without rain. Now, we just read about a time of harvest. In order for there to be a time of harvest, there has to be adequate rain. And because we don't live in such an agrarian culture, we don't understand the value of that regular rain. If God were to withhold the rain, then people don't eat Famine comes about, and so it's always looked on as a great blessing when you would see clouds come and then the wind that lets you know that a storm was coming, and then you'd get adequate rain. Well, then your harvest would be good. But if you went out and you saw the clouds and you felt the wind, but you never got the water, you never got the rain, that's a massive disappointment which is what a man who boasts about his gifts falsely is like. That's the comparison that Solomon chose to draw. Now, if that phrase sounds familiar, it was also picked up in the New Testament in the book of Jude. Jude 12. There is only one chapter in the book of Jude, so it's just Jude, verse 12. Jude is describing people that he calls... Certain persons who have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he describes them as, Yet in the same manner these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Verse 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them. So this gives you some idea what kind of people Jude is busy describing. And in verse 12, he says, these men are those who are hidden reefs, In your love feasts, that just means you can't see them as you're in your boat and you'll strike a reef that you never saw, you didn't occur. It's sudden shipwreck is what's being described. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the blackness has been reserved forever. So Jude is demonstrating this idiomatic phrase and how it refers very seriously to a depth of emptiness and disappointment like clouds and wind without rain. And like I said, because we don't live in an agricultural society, we don't feel that absence of rain the same way that Solomon would have felt it or the same way that Jude would have felt it, but it's a phrase that means just emptiness and uselessness. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Now, verse 15 is another proverb about what it is to be king, to be a ruler, to be a prince. But really, it's another verse about being careful how you talk. It says, By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. You know, growing up, I was always told by my father, when some other kids might be picking on me or something, he would say, "'Sticks and stones can break my bones, "'but words can never hurt me.'" Well, Solomon just said the opposite of that. He said, "'A soft tongue breaks the bone.'" Now, of course, he's creating this contrast on purpose. The softness of the tongue cannot actually break something as dense as a bone. So what is he really talking about? He's talking about speaking to someone kindly, using your tongue in a way that you are encouraging people, that you are building people up, and especially if you're attempting to convince a ruler to do something in your favor or something that you think is beneficial for everybody, and the way to convince them is not to go in And make your argument, not to go in and say, hey, I know better than you do, not to go in and approach the subject through any kind of arrogance, but rather through patience, through forbearance, through putting up with the king's decision making ability. And maybe the king is slow to come to a decision. So you just wait, and through your kindness, through your soft tongue, through your forbearance, through your patience, then the king, the ruler, may be persuaded. If you're trying to convince somebody, if you're trying to attract somebody, it's more likely that they're going to be persuaded. If you use patience, kindness, soft words, then eventually they may see the wisdom of your advice. So one more time, a contrast. As opposed to being hasty to go out and argue with people, if you're patient, through forbearance. You might even convince a king, because a soft tongue is going to break him down eventually, which is, I think, what the phrase means when it says, a soft tongue breaks the bone. A soft tongue, good words, right words under right circumstances, can do a great deal of good, and even you're talking to somebody who doesn't seem to be persuadable, eventually you might even break them down through your patience, through your kind words. I think that's what Solomon is getting at. By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Verse 16 then says, Have you found honey? Honey was considered a a valuable commodity. It was something that couldn't be created by men. It had to be created by bees. If you found a honeycomb, it was sweet to your taste, and it also could make you healthy. It had some healing properties, and certainly if you were out and around and without food, and you were in the wilderness and you found some honey, that would be enough to keep you going, and we see examples of that in the Bible. Hence the question, have you found some honey? Now, the natural tendency when you find some honey, especially if you're hungry, is to overeat it. But then if you do overeat it, there's a likelihood that your body is going to reject it. So, eat, the NASB adds the word only, eat what you need. The word only does correctly make the point that Solomon was trying to make. The Hebrew word that Solomon used means to sufficiency. So, eat only what you need, because, as I said, if you eat too much, the second half of the verse says, lest you have it in excess and vomit it. Okay, so there Solomon is using the eating of honey to say excess is bad. Things that are good are oftentimes only good for you in moderation. We can't live without a little bit of water every day. You get too much water, you drown. Moderation, then, is the key word. Having control over your own desires, over your own wants, having control over your own body. Self-control, according to Solomon, is a very important attribute of what wisdom is. Look at verse 27 of this same chapter where once again the subject returns to honey. It is not good to eat much honey. Well, I think he's already described for us why it's not good to eat too much honey. If you eat more than what is sufficient for you, you're going to throw it up. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. Remember what we read just previously in verse 14? Like clouds and wind without rain is the man who boasts of his gifts falsely? Well, this is the same idea. Somebody who's boasting about themselves, somebody lifting up themselves, trying to establish their own reputation. Solomon says, it's not glory to search out your own glory. If you're trying to lift yourself up, if you're trying to make yourself out to be something that you're actually not, people can see through that. And it's really not to your glory, it's not good for your reputation, and it is not ultimately the way to establish glory, to go around bragging about yourself, so much so that Solomon compared it to eating too much honey, which he previously told us is a way to make you throw up. So Solomon just compared egocentric self-aggrandizement to making yourself sick, or perhaps even making other people want to throw up. We're not quite to chapter 27 yet, but when we reach chapter 27 of Proverbs, we're going to read, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Same idea, same concept. If you go around bragging and boasting about yourself, that is ultimately empty. That's a good way to make people not want to be around you. And it's not good for you to brag about yourself. If there's any bragging to be done about you, let somebody else do it. Now, verse 17 is, again, just really good practical advice. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. Basically, we're just being told, don't be an encroachment on other people's privacy. Don't be at your neighbor's house all the time. Don't be over there taking advantage of your neighbor all the time. Because at some point, they're going to become tired of you and learn to dislike you. It's a great thing when you walk into somebody's house and you feel welcomed. They're happy to see you. They're happy that you're there. But you can, to use a modern expression, wear out your welcome. I remember a phrase that I think was accredited to W.C. Fields. House guests are like fish. After three days, they start to smell funny. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house. Lest he become weary of you and hate you. Verse 18 is back to talking about a man who bears false witness against his neighbor, sort of right back where we began. Don't be hasty to go out and argue your case. Don't go out and talk about your neighbor. Don't spread stories or lies about your neighbor. And don't be a false witness against your neighbor. Don't go out and lie against your neighbor, especially contextually, if it is to make you look good, to establish your own reputation because verse 18 compares the man who bears false witness against his neighbor to things that actually do great harm, a club or a sword or a sharp arrow. I mean, a club is used to beat people, a sword is used to stab people, a sharp arrow is used to pierce somebody. All three of those implements are meant to do physical damage to somebody. And that's what Solomon compares to a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. If you're willing to use your lips, to use your mouth, to say things against somebody else, especially if it's something you did not actually witness, you don't actually know, but you heard it. Somebody told you about it. You listened to the talebearer. You listened to the gossip. And then you went out and tried to validate that story? You went out and said, yes, this is something that you know personally, even though you weren't there, that you don't actually know it. I cannot help but compare that to our modern celebrity-driven culture. I have heard people repeat stories that they read out of the rags that sit by the cash register when you're checking out at the grocery store. And then later, we'll tell somebody, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Hey, did you hear the latest about Brad Pitt? You know, and then you tell the story about them. And the truth is, you don't know that. And the truth is, the person who wrote the story may not know that. They're just trying to sell papers. That is a modern and somewhat silly example of what Solomon is talking about. You can do a tremendous amount of damage when you go out and talk about somebody else, when you talk about your neighbor, when you bear false witness against them, It's not that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Solomon says here that your words can do a great deal of harm. Like a club, like a sword, like a sharp arrow, you can do all kinds of damage with your lips. So again, remember the advice that a word spoken in right circumstances, that's what's valuable. A wise reproof to a listening ear... That's what's valuable. But cutting other people down, gossiping about other people, false witnessing against other people can do a tremendous amount of damage. Verse 19. In contrast to the faithful messenger, someone that you can actually trust, Solomon is about to turn his attention to a faithless man If you have confidence in a faithless man during the time of trouble, and then because he's faithless, he tells other people your secrets, he misrepresents you, he carries gossip about you, he bears false witness against you. If you had trust, if you had confidence in that person, and then they turn around and stab you in the back during your own time of trouble, well, Solomon compares that to a toothache. Like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot. An unsteady foot is the opposite of being sure-footed. If you're walking and you stumble, especially if you stumble badly, either you can twist your ankle or you can fall down. You can do yourself all kinds of harm if your foot is not steady, especially given the fact that most of the roads and paths on which people were walking a few thousand years ago were not the finely paved and flat surfaces that we have the great pleasure of walking on now. Very seldom do any of us go out walking and suddenly fall into a ditch. But Solomon uses that example, just the worst things he can think about being unsteady in foot, having a bad toothache. He says that's what it's like when you have confidence, when you place your confidence in somebody who turns out not to be trustworthy, especially if they prove themselves to be faithless while you're going through trouble. And they go out and carry the story of your trouble and use it against you. Use it as a demonstration that maybe you must have done something wrong, otherwise this terrible thing would not have befallen you. That certainly is the book of Job. And may I also add that faithless people are a dime a dozen. If you can find a good friend, if you can find a confidant, if you can find somebody you can really trust Well, that is of tremendous value in this lifetime. You'll get to know a lot of people in your life. And now with the advent of Facebook and social media, you may have thousands and thousands of friends, so-called, even though very few of them are really people who you know well, who are going to remain faithful regardless of what bad things come your way. A real friend is somebody who knows the worst about you and still remains your friend. But man, it is like a toothache, like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot when you put your confidence in somebody who's faithless, especially during a time of trouble. So let's say that you're going through a time of trouble. Let's say that you have a deeply troubled heart. Let's say that you are in mourning. One of the worst things that people can do for you at that moment is to tell you, cheer up. It's all going to be okay. They might even yank out some solid biblical principles that they use as little colloquialisms that don't really bring you any comfort. Well, somebody who does that Solomon describes as someone who sings songs to a troubled heart. Now, the singing of songs that Solomon is referring to is not like our modern-day songs where there's words set to melody. Think about the book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Songs, a few thousand years ago, might have musical accompaniment but they were really recitations. They could be stories. They could be tales of valor or tales of heartbreak. Most often, they were poetic renderings of things that people could memorize, tales that they could tell later. Those were known as a song. But the primary idea behind this phrase, he who sings songs to a troubled heart, is somebody who tries to bring happiness, merriment, to somebody who's troubled. Somebody who's really distressed. When somebody is mourning, when somebody has lost a loved one, they have to go through their grief. They have to go through the stages of that grief. So when they are in the early onset of grieving, if you come and start trying to be merry with them, all you're going to do is emphasize their grief all the more. And your words are going to become useless, pointless. They're going to do more harm than do good. Sometimes the best thing you can do for somebody who's really hurting is just to sit with them and let them know that you're there and let them know that you care. Hold them while they cry and understand that they need to let it out. Let them. Don't try to make merry when they're trying to express their pain. Solomon says, He who sings songs to a troubled heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda. Neither of those are good things. If it's a cold day and you take off your outer garment, you're going to be really cold. You're going to start shivering in the cold. And vinegar on soda is an interesting translation. The Hebrew word is more akin to natron. Now, if you don't know what natron is, Merriam-Webster defines it this way, a hydrous native sodium carbonate used in ancient times in embalming, in ceramic paste, and as a cleansing agent. For instance, in ancient Egypt, When people used to be embalmed after they would remove the body's internal organs, priests then used natron, which was like a naturally occurring salt, to dry the body out. That was part of mummification. That practice and that substance was well known in the Middle East. And Solomon knows with natron that it doesn't mix well with vinegar. And vinegar is the result of wine that's gone bad. If you pour those two together, you get a rather combustible reaction. So Solomon says, like someone taking off their garment on a cold day, which is going to make you freeze, it's going to make you shiver, or like vinegar into soda or natron, which is going to be a combustion. Neither of those are good things, And they both create bad reactions. And he says that's what it's like when someone tries to sing songs to somebody else who has a troubled heart. So it's a good description. It's an accurate description. When somebody is troubled, when somebody is grieving, when somebody's in pain, you don't want to create a bad reaction to them. So don't try to necessarily cheer them up at that moment. Let them go ahead and feel their pain until it comes to an end. The phrase that I have often used to people who were going through their struggles, through their trials, I've told them this is going to hurt and it's going to hurt bad until it doesn't hurt anymore. And that's the natural state of grief. We have to go through our grief and it hurts and it's awful, until. We learn to cope with it. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because Paul quotes that in Romans 12.20. And we just recently finished going through the book of Romans verse by verse on Sunday mornings. And so that phrase jumps out. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I have always read that as a negative thing that if you did something good for your enemy, if you treated your enemy well, that in so doing you were in some way condemning him. And that's just the way I've always read it and understood it. But this time through, I dug a little deeper into that phrase. And again, it's kind of an idiomatic phrase. You will heap burning coals on his head. In the Middle East, when it was cold... You had to have burning coals in order to keep fire and heat inside your domain. And if your coals went out, then you, your family, everybody in your house was going to freeze. And it was difficult sometimes, especially in the cold, to start a new fire and get those burning coals going again. And so it was not uncommon for someone to go to a neighbor and ask for a few burning coals And with that, they could reignite a fire in their own house. And then they would carry those coals in a bucket on their head and they would carry it back home. So possibly what this phrase is telling us is that heaping burning coals on his head is an act of kindness, an act of generosity to a neighbor who has run out of fire in his own house. So maybe... It's equatable to giving him food, giving him something to drink, and keeping him warm. Those are all acts of kindness that you're doing to your neighbor. So, again, in my previous reading, I would say now perhaps misreading of it, I always thought that it was an example of you be kind to your neighbor, don't mete out your own vengeance, because vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he's going to mete out that vengeance. And certainly that is the context that Paul puts it in, in Romans 12, starting at Romans 12, verse 19. Well, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry... Feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if we take verse 19 and set it aside for just a moment, the whole concept of vengeance is mine, and obviously, Paul is talking about with your enemies, don't exact your own revenge, God will take care of that. You just do the right thing. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, and if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head, and if that phrase is actually an act of kindness, it fits perfectly with all the other instructions, to live at peace with all men, to give him food, to give him drink, to give him coals to keep the fire going. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is, I think, the key phrase that demonstrates what Paul's actual understanding of that phrase is. This is an example of overcoming evil with good. So be good to your neighbor, be good to your enemy, feed him, give him drink, give him hot coals if he needs it. In all those ways, as much as lays within you, you are living at peace with all men because ultimately we who have the spirit of God within us are to be peacemakers. Blessed are the the peacemakers. So the end result of all that is, if you do that, if you're willing to give up your own food, your own water, your own burning coals with which you are keeping yourself and your family warm, if you're willing to do that, The Lord will reward you. God, who is the source of everything you have, is going to make sure to provide for you, even as you go about doing good, even to your enemies. And maybe, just maybe, that bit of kindness to your enemy is going to bring about that opportunity, not only to demonstrate the goodness of God to them, but as even Peter says, We're then to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks about, who inquires about the hope that is within us, and that we do that with gentleness and patience. So all of it, collectively, seems to be steering in the same direction, which is that we, as God-fearing people, as Christian people on the planet, we ought to be good to people, we ought to be kind, we ought to demonstrate the kindness and forbearance of God, and not to just do that to people who are a benefit to us. But to be willing to live like that with everybody, because after all, never forget, God was very, very good to you while you were an enemy of his. While we were yet enemies, God gave his only son to be a propitiation for our sins. And if God can reach out to that extent and demonstrate that level of kindness to us, what should we be willing to do in response? If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So maybe, just maybe, being kind to your enemies is a way of demonstrating that you're not taking your own revenge and you're leaving it up to God to pour out his vengeance, and in so doing, he's going to do that pouring out coals on their head negative thing. But maybe especially given what it says here in Proverbs and the context about being good, loyal, faithful to people and not being in a hurry to argue or do damage to your neighbor, possibly heaping coals on your neighbor's head is an act of kindness, just like the water, just like the food, to help keep them warm. And then trust that God will reward you for those acts of kindness. Verse 23 then. A north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. Okay, basically Solomon is comparing two things. One that everybody knows. Again, as I said, in an agricultural society, people know what the signs are that rain is coming and a north wind is a very good indication, especially with clouds. Then you know that rain is coming. That's going to bring forth food But Solomon is stating it here as a sign, as an indication of what's about to happen. It's a certain inevitability. When you feel the north wind, you also know the rain is coming. The same way, if you have a backbiting tongue, if you're gossiping about people, if you're talking about people behind their back, if you're busy making your case and uh, defending yourself, boasting about yourself, And in so doing, damaging somebody else, well, the inevitable outcome is that people are going to have an angry countenance against you. And as he has already said, an evil report about you is going to go around and it's not going to pass away. It's going to destroy your reputation. So I think when we put all of that together as the scribes of Hezekiah have done. They they pieced all these Proverbs together on purpose because they're all stating the same thing. The topic is the same throughout. And the topic is just be careful how you talk to people. Be careful how you use your lips and your tongue. Make sure that you're reassuring people. Make sure that you're trustworthy. Make sure that you're not backbiting. Make sure that you're not double-tongued. Make sure that you're not False witness. Make sure that you're not backbiting people. Make sure that you're demonstrating kindness to your neighbor. Make sure that you are trustworthy and that you're able to say a good word at the appropriate time. And make sure that you have the kind of discernment that isn't saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, which is what it would be if you tried to speak cheerily to somebody who's in mourning. If you have good discernment, you're going to understand what the appropriate word is at the appropriate moment. You're going to know when it is appropriate to rebuke somebody, to reprove somebody, to correct somebody. But you're also going to know when the right time is to encourage somebody. And you're going to know when it's time to just not say much at all, to just be there with people. But once you wreck your own reputation and people know that you have a backbiting tongue, the end result of that, the inevitable end result of that, can only be an angry countenance. People are going to be angry at you as they discover that characteristic of yours. Verse 24, then, is a recitation of a verse that we've previously seen. In Proverbs twenty-one nine and in Proverbs 25.24, it says, It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. I don't think it's any mistake that the scribes of Hezekiah decided to put that right after the statement that a backbiting tongue brings about an angry countenance. Living with in this case, a contentious, argumentative woman. But living with anybody, being around anybody who is constantly argumentative, somebody who is constantly contentious, is so very wearying. It is so tiring that Solomon would say, it's better to live up on the roof, in a corner, in a confined space, by yourself. That is better than having to deal with somebody who uses their tongue, uses their lips, to just contend, to argue, to make you constantly unhappy, bringing about that angry countenance. The end results of all of that is just so bad that Solomon said, and remember, this is Solomon who lived in a luxurious castle. He had a marvelous home. And yet he would say, it's better to be cordoned off in a corner of a roof than to put up with a constantly argumentative person. And on the other hand, verse 25, again, these verses are all collected in this order on purpose by the scribes of Hezekiah. On the other hand, good news from a distant land. You get a faithful messenger who shows up and tells you something positive, especially coming from a foreign king. Maybe there's a cessation of war. Maybe there's a peace pact being formed. Maybe there's food after a famine. Maybe there's an establishment of an agreement between kingdoms. Maybe there's even news that a long-lost friend has been found. Any kind of good news that comes from a distant land is like cold water to a weary soul. It's very much like snow at the time of harvest. These are refreshing things. These are things that lift the spirit when you're tired, when you're worn out, when you're weary, when you've had enough of this world. And then you get some good news faithfully carried to you. Something that just, you didn't see it coming. That feels so good. That is such an unexpected pleasure. And it can lift your spirits in the middle of an otherwise bad day. And then, verses 26 and 28 go together. We've already read verse 27, It's not good to eat much honey. Nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. But verse 26 says, Like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Verse 28, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Solomon has just talked about cold water being a refreshment. Finding water, good water, pure water that didn't make you sick, was very important in the Middle East given the desert environment. And if you happened upon a spring of water, but it had been trampled down, so that the water couldn't come up naturally if people had walked in it, so perhaps it had become polluted in some way. That's what he's referring to as a trampled spring, a spring that's not good anymore, or a polluted well, a well that was dug for the purpose of bringing up water, but then when the water comes up, you find that it's not good water. It's poisoned water. It's polluted water. Well, those are the examples that he uses to compare a righteous man who gives way before the wicked okay that is one of the saddest things you can behold in this lifetime look it is a reality that bad company corrupts good morals i have seen it so often that good people christian people people who are striving towards righteousness will spend too much time with the unrighteous of this world And one of the most interesting outcomes of that is that the corrupt people seem to have overmuch influence on the righteous, much more so than the righteous have influence over the unrighteous. In other words, if you take some wicked people and some righteous people and you put them together for a period of time, what you will find is that the person who started out righteous will begin compromising his stand, his morality, his principles, in order to fit in with the unrighteous. But the opposite is virtually never true. You never see the unrighteous suddenly raise their moral standard in order to make the righteous person feel more at ease. You don't see unrighteous people want to fit in with the righteous group. But you'll often see the righteous want to fit in with the immoral group. Solomon describes that as a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. He doesn't hold his righteous standard. He tries to fit in. He tries to go along to get along. Well, all of that kind of behavior, which I'm trying to demonstrate, continues to this very day. Solomon compared to going to a spring or going to a well because you're parched, you're thirsty, you need some refreshing, and when you get there, you find out that it's not good water. That's a tremendous letdown. That's a tremendous disappointment, and you don't get the expected refreshing that he compares to a righteous man who gives way, who compromises before the wicked. And then he says... Like a city that is broken into without walls. We're talking about a king who was a king over a fortified city. He knew how important it was to have good walls, solid walls, that didn't have any break in them where the enemy could sneak in and overtake the city. In fact, if your wall was broken down in any way, it was like not having a wall. If you have a wall, that terminology means you're completely protected. But once there's a break in the wall, you're no longer protected. You're no longer safe. And that's what Solomon compares to a man who has no control over his own spirit, over a man who doesn't know what kind of man he is. In other words, if you're a righteous person You're meant to be a righteous person at all times and in all places. If you compromise that righteousness in order to get along with the unrighteous of this world, then you don't really have control over your spirit, over your inner man, over the essential elements of what makes you, you. And that lack of control results in you compromising your testimony again, just in order to get along to satisfy the unrighteous of this world. And it really ought to be the opposite way, that you as the righteous person ought to be a beacon of hope and confidence and goodness and peacemaking in this world. And far too often, because the world doesn't appreciate those kind of qualities, we end up compromising our internal righteousness, our spirit, our inward man, We compromise in order to get along. And Solomon uses some of his strongest language. Being the king, he knows the fastest way to lose the kingdom is to have a breach in the wall where the enemy can come in. That's like not having a wall, and that's what it's like when you have no control over your spirit. When you forget what kind of person you are, what God has called you to be, if you are the separated from the world, if you are the called out, if you are the redeemed in Christ— well, then you're not to compromise in order to get along with this world. And that is the end of chapter 25 of the book of Proverbs. Really good, not only practical, but very, very spiritual advice. Next week, God willing, whether from here at home or up at the pulpit at GCA, we're going to continue through the book of Proverbs. And hopefully, the time that we've spent here together today was of benefit to you, was a comfort to you, was appropriate instruction, a word appropriately spoken to you, but mostly I hope that it builds up your faith, builds up your confidence in the Word of God, so that your life, your character, your walk is all a reflection of the God that we serve.